My mother is five foot, exactly. Uh, she's this big, but she has a personality and a spunk that will tell everyone what to do. No one stands in front of my mom. It's kind of intimidating and I'm almost double her size. And so, there, but my mom is five foot and, and she is deathly afraid of water. Uh, she grew up in Michigan. She grew up swimming. So we know that she can swim. We know that it's something that she's able to do. But something happened and she doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, and, and now she hates water. Uh, I, we always kid her that she gets nervous in the shower. Uh, and we always kid her around that, that this is why she doesn't come up here. Because water might hit her head and she might drown. But there's this one time. And every family has this story or a story like this. Uh, Mom was convinced by dad, and I was like seven or eight. We were in Lake Tahoe, staying at a friend's condo. And uh, uh, Lake Tahoe, for those, it's, it's just a big lake. And uh, we, were, we were staying in this place, and dad decided he was going to convince mom to go in a paddle boat. Uh, those, like floating on water boat, and where you kick. And so, and we were all like, whoa. This is going to happen. And we are all standing there and mom's got her life vest on and then she's got another one that she's holding on to. And they were convinced. And so they start to paddle out. And my brother and I, amazed at what's happening, uh, decide to hang on the side of the boat just to be sure what's going on. And, and as, as they're going along, dad probably noticed this before mom, but a little bit of water started coming in the boat. I think his feet started to get wet. And uh, he looks over at my brother and I and says, guys, back off. Maybe, maybe we were pulling the boat down below the chop or something. And then so we leave and we go sit on the dock wondering what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden mom realizes it. And she starts, mom's voice can get pretty high pitched. Uh, she'll be here in a couple weeks, so you, gotta, you have to ask her about this story. Uh, she'll hate me. Uh, but she, she starts freaking out. I think water touched her leg or something that she wasn't expecting. And she starts yelling at the top of her lungs so the entire beach can hear this. Dale! That was my dad's name. Dale! And the dad turns the boat around and he tries to get back into shore. And mom's bailing water out. Dad's pedaling as fast as he can. And us kids are sitting on the dock like, this is great. Uh, they were sinking. Their boat was sinking. Here's what happened. It turned out they took this boat and they pushed off. And the person who rented them the boat didn't put the plugs in the bottom. And so they were in a, in a boat with no plugs. And they were pretty much without hope, right? They were going down. They couldn't do anything about it. Uh, we still kid mom with this. A few years ago, we went on a cruise. Uh, a whole family flew into Long Beach, went on a Mexican cruise. And mom's sitting in her room and we, every meal, hey mom, are the plugs in? And she, shut up. <laughs> but it's, it's, just, it's one of those family stories. But it's a time in their life where they realize something, and we all realize it's a picture of something. They were sinking. And until they realized they were sinking and actually did something about it, there was no hope for them. They were done. There's nothing they could have done. They were sinking. As we look in, into Romans chapter 2, uh, the, what we get to is the first two and a half chapters of this book uh, has, or we're in Romans chapter 3, but the first two and a half chapters of this book is Paul making an argument. And we said last week Paul's doing one of those diatribes where he's pretend arguing with somebody and imagining their response. He's convicted them in his mind. He's gotten to Romans 3, and the whole conviction is this. 
You're sinking. Everybody is sinking. Society is sinking. The plugs are out of the boat. Somebody ripped them out. You're taking on water. There's nothing you can do right now but sink. We're hopeless. And if we look around and we look outside of our windows and pay much attention, read the news headlines, we would agree our society is sinking. Uh, Jeff Flake was quoted in the Washington Post as saying this is probably the lowest point in U.S. history. tend to agree with him. The amount of uh, bitterness, hatred, and the lack of dialogue happening that we see everywhere around us points to that same thing. We're at a pretty low point in our history. We need to paddle faster. We need to bail out water quicker. And instead, if we do, but instead what's happening is a lot of us simply feel helpless in it. And if you've ever been on the short end of a, of a stick and you feel like you're helpless, there's nothing you can do about the sinking, you're usually caught between two, two, uh, two, two different things to act. When you feel like you're hopeless, when you feel like you can't win, your first action is to what? Just give up. What's the point? There's no point in this. I'm going to lose anyways. Or your second thing is to try hard, paddle faster, find a bigger bucket, and bail water out more vigorously. These are the poles that we find ourselves in. This is what Paul comes up to. Paul is telling the people just like this. Every, this world is sinking. But there's one thing for sure. When you realize you're sinking, there's, there's an opportunity in that realization for Christ to break in. And for Christ to do something about your sinking ship. Our brokenness, the times where we realize that we are hopeless, are times where we can rely on Christ's hope in this. The bottom line is this, until we see ourselves as sick, until we see ourselves as broken, until we see ourselves as guilty, we will never desire to be fixed. We're all sinking in sin. We're all sinking in brokenness. But we're not sunk. Because what Jesus does for us, we have hope. This entire argument that Paul has been started up can be summed up in one sentence. Everybody is guilty. The Jewish person is guilty. The ultra-religious Jewish person is guilty. The Epicurean type that seek pleasure for their highest good, they're guilty. Everybody in between, guilty. The entire world is guilty. And so Paul shows us these three positions where he sees uh, humanity in this passage. He says, you're guilty, you're powerless, but you're free. There's two of them that, that go together, and this last one doesn't really make sense, but we'll get to it. You're guilty, you're powerless, but you're free. The first one is guilt. How many of you ever played a board game where you knew you were going to lose and you were losing miserably? Yes? Which one? Monopoly. That will get everybody fighting. Uh, the, the ticket to ride, I always find myself about to lose and I want to trip and knock over the, the, the board. Uh, or if, they're, if, if it's in sports and your team is desperate, like just embarrassingly losing, the coach usually puts in the fifth string, the water staff, the physical trainers. Everybody gets a chance to play because what's the point? We're just going to lose. In baseball, when uh, there was a couple times when my team, the Angels, was down by 15 or so and they were out of pitchers, the shortstop decides to pitch. What's the point? We're just going to lose, so why not just give up? In high school, my, uh, my first game on varsity, uh, I was pretty excited. I was uh, a tackle, and I, I, was, I was playing well until I looked at the score and saw that we had scored zero, and the other team had scored 63. <sighs> that was rough. 
We just want to hide. That was not a good football season. I'm glad it's over. But we just want to hide. When you know that you're losing, your first, your first, your first thing is like, this is just getting old. I want to be done with this. And in Paul, in making this argument with the, with the Roman people, he's anticipating that this is what they're going to be saying. And, and, and he, this is what they say in his mind. What advantage is there then in being a Jew? Or what value is in circumcision? What value is it in being set apart? Is there any value in this? In other words, what's the point? We've given up, Paul. If we're guilty, there's nothing we can do about it then why are we even playing this game anymore? And Paul's response to them in verse 2 is, is this. Oh, there's a lot of advantages. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very word of God. The Jews were the ones that were truly called to be the light of the world. They held God's message for, entire, for the entire creation. They were supposed to be the deliverer of this message, to fulfill this, to demonstrate what God was like. But they were found guilty of not holding their end of the bargain. And because of that, they, they, they were called unfaithful. This is why in verse 3, Paul says this. Or the, the response back is, what if some were unfaithful? Were their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Or in other words, if me being so bad, hopelessly losing, will that make God look even worse because he's entrusted me with this message and I failed miserably? Now because I'm losing so bad, does this make God look bad? Make sense? If I'm terrible, do I make God look terrible? And Paul says, in essence, no. But what Paul does is interesting. He, instead of just flat out saying no, Paul decides to quote a verse. And he quotes something from Psalm 51. And we see things like this all the way through Scripture, especially in Paul's writing. He likes to fly back to other passages and just quote maybe one or two lines from it. And when we read this in our Western minds, we just look at that same verse and say, well, that's what Paul meant. He's talking about Psalm 51, verse 4. You are righteous to judge, and I should be judged. And, and so we think, oh, that's it. But when Paul makes these quotations, and hang on to this because it comes in handy a little later. When Paul makes these quotations of verses, he's not just saying the exact verse. He's, meaning to, it to, he's talking about the context of the verse. We have this in our society. When, uh, if I were to say 9-11, what comes to mind? The New York, the, the terror attack in, in World Trade Center. If I were to say four score and seven years ago, we think of Lincoln, right, maybe, maybe I do. We think of Lincoln at Gettysburg. When we, ha- we have these phrases where we say them, and automatically, because we're, we're tuned to the culture, we know this is what you're talking about here. This is what Paul is saying. He says, he quotes this from Psalm 51, but what he's meaning to talk about is the entire, the entire chapter of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, the context of this. David had, had slept with Bathsheba. She conceived. He then murdered Bathsheba's husband. And then when the baby was born, the baby died. And Nathan comes up, the prophet of that day, comes to David and says... You have sinned. He says, you're the man that has stolen the thing of great value from this family. And David is undone. And he says, yes. And then he writes this psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of David coming back to to Christ or coming back to God saying, I'm sorry. And he goes on to this. He doesn't stay in this judgment. 
He doesn't say, I've been judged, you're the judge, I am dirt. But what he does is says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew my standing in you. Bring me back to relationship with you. There is a point in David's life where he is made aware of his guilt, but he doesn't stay guilty. He comes back. And he's renewed in relationship. He, has, he repents and he comes back to, to relationship with God. It shows us something here. Paul says, you're guilty. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't wiggle out of this one. God doesn't play favorites. You're guilty. We've been found guilty of being faithless. But in our guilt of being faithless, God is still remaining faithful. He doesn't remain faithful just to to rub it in to make us feel bad. He remains faithful that we, like David, will come back to him, repent, and be forgiven, and have a restored relationship. This is the point of Paul saying, you're guilty. You're guilty. Time to come home now. Time to come back. Time to come back to relationship. We're guilty is the first position. The second position that Paul tells us is we're powerless. Look in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. In the first one, he says, do we have any advantage of being Jewish? And Paul says, absolutely, there's an advantage. And then you read down eight verses and it says, do we have any advantage? And Paul says, not really. It it can look like Paul's uh, kind of lost his mind here. He forgot what he said or what he wrote. But Paul is repeating the same question, but he's answering a different way in the second part. The first one is, what's the point? Shouldn't I just go and give up? And Paul says, no, don't ever give up. God's faithful so that you would come back to them. The second one is, what's the point? I thought it meant something to be Jewish, and, and, and I thought that God was going to play favorites to us, and Paul says, no, you're not going to get favorites. There's no favorites here. God sees Jew and Gentile alike. You, it, it's a level playing field, and everybody is held accountable to God. God doesn't play favorites. So if you're, and then Paul goes on to prove his point a little further. Paul uses this uh, technique that the rabbis used in that day, and they called stringing of pearls. And he just lays out a bunch of verses in chapter 3 of why everybody in the world is held guilty. If you're keeping score, if you want to write this down, he, he says, he quotes from Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, and just for good measure... He says a bit from Isaiah 59. And in every single one of these verses, remember, he says these knowing that the people he's writing to would have the whole thing in that they would know what these passages were like and they would know the context of it. They've been studying these for their entire lives. So when he drops a line, he knows that they know what this passage is talking about. And all of these passages, there's a point to it. The point is that though you are powerless, though you are guilty, there's still a chance of being brought back. Everybody is guilty. You are powerless, but there's still hope. In verse 19, Paul says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. You're guilty. You're powerless. 
There's nothing you can say to make yourself any better. And so he drops this phrase in there that every mouth will be silenced. Guys, have you ever been in an argument with a significant other where you know if you say anything else, you're going to be in more trouble than you can ever imagine? Yes, every person should be going like this because we're guys and we say stupid things. Women never say anything dumb. And so, but have you ever been to that place it might, where you have said something and you go, I've said too much and this is not helping me at all? Have you ever been there? This is what Paul is saying when every mouth will be silenced. In his day, in the, the, the day of court, if you had said something or if you were already guilty, you would... Instead of saying, I take the fifth, because they didn't have the faith amendment back then, you would simply stand with your hand over your mouth. I've got nothing to say. I should do this sometime with Carrie. Um, I shouldn't say any more. Because if I said any more, it would just make things worse. This is what Paul is saying in verse 19. You have said everything you can say. You're guilty. Puts a hand over your mouth. You ain't going to wiggle out on this one. You're obviously guilty. This is what happened in John 18 uh, when Jesus was being on trial. And, and, and sometimes if things got out of hand and you were blabbering on or saying too much or not saying enough, you would get hit in the face by a guard. I'm glad we don't do that when I tend to go long-winded or start blabbering and someone walks up and hits me in the face. Uh, but this is what would happen in those days. You said too much. You're guilty. You're not helping your case. So when Paul says every mouth would be, would be stopped or every mouth would be silenced, what he's imagining is everybody in the world is held powerless. The whole world is accountable to God. And you're obviously guilty. And now we have to face God as our judge. Now, this is an overly technical way to look at this, but Paul is a writing style that Paul incorporates in these first few chapters is similar to what the prophets do. This will all make sense soon, I hope. Uh, but it's similar to what the prophets do. They lay out a charge. They say, this is where you've gone wrong. This is why you're guilty. And then they say, here is your judgment. And then at the end of every prophetic book in the Old Testament is this ray of hope and sunshine. Uh, because... Judgment is in between something. It's in between the pronouncement of guilt and, in, and the, on one side and on the other side is your deliverance. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying you are guilty. You're powerless. This is the judgment that has come. And, but it gets better. You don't have to stay in that judgment. Each one of these passages that Paul is quote is framed and followed by a promise that God will rescue all who are powerless and keep his promises despite everything that they have done or anything that they might be doing. It's easy to read the first three chapters of Romans and instantly lose hope. You can make theologies about how bad we are and really sink into your sin and get stuck there. But that's not Paul's intention. Yes, we are all guilty. Yes, we are powerless. We are held by sin. We are broken individuals. Our ship is sinking. But we don't have to stay sunk. We don't have to stay guilty. We don't have to stay powerless. We aren't hopeless. Our story might be marked by places where we have failed, but we don't have to live like failures. Our stories don't end in the low places, and neither does Paul. 
He doesn't say, okay, now that you're guilty and powerless, I'm going to sign the letter and then sign off and see you in a couple weeks. No, he continues. He's writing this and he wants to paint the desperate picture that humanity is in. Have we ever seen a Western movie where it, it goes and you see just how bad it is for like an hour and a half of how the bad guys are just ruling this town? And then what happens? When all hope is lost, the camera fades back and then you see the, 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 the horse's leg come into the screen and the dust flies up. And then the tumbleweed comes across and you know that the hero has come onto the scene. This is what Paul is doing. He's painting this picture of just desperation. We need help. This is the bottom. This is how far we've, this is how far we've strayed. This is our boat with no plugs. We're sinking and we have to do something about it. And Paul says two words in, in Romans 3.21 and it starts with this one. And whenever Paul says these words, whether it's in Colossians, Ephesians, or Corinthians, or any of his letters, pay attention. Because he uses these words to introduce something. He says, but now. This is what's going on. This is how bad things have gotten. But now... Things are different. Two very powerful words in scripture. But now. He uses them a few times later in Romans and we'll get to them later. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets, the Torah and the prophets. Remember, he's writing this a lot like the law and the prophets. The law was the first five books of the Old Testament and some of the Psalms, some of the ones which Paul has quoted. The law and the prophets testify to what? The righteousness of God. In these next three or four verses in this closing chapter, closing the chapter of three, there are so many technical theological words that we don't have time to get to all of them. But we'll say if we'll get to a few phrases. The first one he says is, is the righteousness of God. In Greek, it's dikosine theao, which means the righteousness of God. Uh, it, it shows up in Romans 1.17, but it carries with it the idea that God's righteousness and actions are that which he comes to correct creation and show himself faithful. When anyone else is being faithless, but now the righteousness of God shows that God is still faithful. God's righteousness is, chief, is, a, is a way of designating his saving action and delivering people who are trapped. The righteousness of God is, is God's character embodied in his works. The righteousness of God takes us and shows us that there's something bigger coming, that we don't have to stay where you are. Righteousness that Paul talks about here leads to something else in verse 22. The righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe. Righteousness enables us to be justified by Christ. God's doing something. The righteousness, his holiness, the fact that he keeps his promises is taking us. And then, then the next stop of righteousness is the faith in Christ. In other words, God's righteousness flashes like a beacon or like that exit sign does and says, hey, this is a way out. You don't have to be stuck here in this building that's going down. Your ship might be sinking, but you don't have to sink with it. It's an interesting word here, the faith in Christ, and there's been volumes written on this, uh, there's debate over whether it's faith in Christ or faith of Christ. Both of them are great. 
you have faith in Christ that he that in the sacrifice that he did. But what some scholars will argue and something that has some very practical reasons for us today is the faith of Christ. If we look at it, Paul for 3 chapters has been showing how everybody has been faithless to the law. How the Jews haven't kept up with the circumcision or with, with their part of being uh, uh, messengers of God, how they failed and been faithless. And he says the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, and anybody else have not been faithful to their call. Entire world has been faithless. And then he says, but the faith of Jesus, those who believe in the faith of Christ. Christ is the Messiah He's the representative of humanity to God, and he's been found faithful. Are we tracking? So the faith of Jesus to uphold everything that we have been told to uphold, Christ upheld it. He is now our representative. So the faith of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, not believing what Jesus believed, but the faithful actions of Jesus upholding the end of the bargain that we failed, now puts us in right standing through God. Because when God looks at us, he sees the faithfulness of Christ. We tracking? The faithfulness of Christ. So what is true of Christ, because we put faith in his faithfulness, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. This is what Paul writes about in Colossians when he says, your lives are hidden with Christ in God. It's a lot of prepositions. Hidden with Christ in God, which means that when God looks at you, he sees not the places where you have been unfaithful or places where you're broken or the places where you have sinned. Instead, he sees the faith of Christ marked on you and your life is hidden in that. We're not powerless. We're not guilty. He sees Christ. This is why it's important, the faith of Christ. Now, Jesus believed this, and he, Jesus was faithful to the law. Faith in Jesus is good. Faith of Jesus is great. And so both are good things, but when you're thinking about yourself, when you're thinking about the ways that you failed and you think God must be really mad at me, no, because he sees the faithfulness of Jesus in you. Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus uh, was faithful to the point of death on a cross. Redemption, God keeping his promise, leads to us finding our place in Jesus, but then leads to more. Uh, It leads to something called redemption. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is a wonderful clobber verse for anybody, right? That's what it's always used about. This is the first step on the Romans road. Have everyone admit they're sinner. But the problem is we stop there. And we start defining ourselves that we're sinners, we don't read on in the story because verse 24 is very hopeful. And not only are we sinners, yes, we sinned, we're unfaithful, but we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. Your story doesn't end where you have failed. Redemption is the next term. Redemption's a technical term and, and it, it has this allusions back to Exodus. Redemption is something being bought that was sold into slavery. And for Paul, this is a major part of his story. You were a slave to sin. 
You were left at a pawn shop. Someone sold you off. And Christ comes and his redemption brings you back. Buys you out of the slavery. This is a major piece in all of Paul's writings. You've been redeemed. You are no longer held captive. You are no longer powerless in this. You've been redeemed. You are no longer a slave to sin. Righteousness leads to the faithfulness. Faithfulness leads to redemption. And redemption leads to being justified. Because of the redemption, we are no longer guilty. We're justified. Meaning that we're, we're, no, we're, we're not only pardoned from our guilt, we're freed from the consequences. And because we're hidden in Christ's faithfulness, we are, we are declared to be in the right. Paul says, you were guilty, but now, because of all this stuff, You are set free. And he says this in verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Justifies. It's it's a present active participle if we're going to get grammatical. It means justifying. It means it's ongoing over and over and over again. It means the broken places in your life that we think define us and stop us, Christ is constantly making those and saying, yeah, but I I, I set you free from that. I'm broken, yes, but I'm justifying that. I've set you free from that. Anytime we can acknowledge the places that we're broken, the places that we're sinking, Jesus comes and says, got it. You're freed from that one too. I'm justifying this. It's over and over and over setting you free and saying you are being declared righteous in this place. We are constantly being declared right. And because of this, we're given a new status. But here's the rub. In order for us to grab on to that justification, in order for us to see God's righteousness, in order for us to have, the, to have faith in Christ's faithfulness, we need to come to the place where my mom and dad got, got to, where they feel the water on their feet and they go, we're sinking. Because when we realize we're sinking, there's an opportunity there for hope to break in. Your brokenness is a good thing. When you realize you're broken, it's a great thing because once you realize you're sick, you can say, I need to go to the doctor. In Romans 1, Paul says this, that God gave them over to their brokenness. In other words, God's wrath is saying, you want this? I'm not going to allow you to feel guilt for this anymore. You can just keep on going. They can't realize that what they're doing is wrong anymore. It's like when you become a habitual liar. You don't even know when you're telling the truth. Your guilty conscience, the spirit has stopped convicting you. And now you won't see that you're broken anymore. Because you've ignored it for so long. And you begin to live in the cycle of brokenness. The rub for us, or where this, this really gets hard for each and every one of us, is to see the places where we're broken and admit, yes, I am. I'm broken. And Jesus goes, I know, but I can make you whole again. I'm sinking. I know. I have a life vest. You're not sunk. There's hope in realizing 
your brokenness. Paul writes in Corinthians later on in the, in the next letter in the Bible, he says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. We avoid these places in our lives where we're broken. We try to hide them. We try to say, well, I'm already this broken. I might as well live into it and be more broken. Or, or we try and, and just say, there's no point in trying to be any better. We give up because we're losing. We turn the tables. But Jesus says, no, I can use your brokenness. Because the places where you're broken are the places where I can make you whole again. When I can make you whole again, I can use you. Remember David, he's broken. He's done something. He's, he's murdered. He's had adultery. He had a kid that was killed or that died in labor. And so there's all this thing. And he comes and says, yes, I'm broken. Create in me something new. All of those passages that Paul quotes from Psalms and Isaiah, all of them have to deal with brokenness and then being made new. God can use your brokenness if you admit to him, I'm broken, and I need you to put me back together again. Judah, my, 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 he's going to be three, he has this habit of breaking toys. And uh, he always comes to me, and his first thing is batteries. Daddy just needs batteries. And even though it's a, a Hot Wheel and doesn't need batteries, it can't hold a battery. Uh, but he'll come to me and say, it's, it's broke. And he never wants to play with it again. And, and I'll look at it and I'll go, oh, buddy, it's one, it doesn't take batteries. And then, and then two, we can fix it. And I, I should buy stock in Gorilla Glue because I buy more of that than anything. But we could, I could take his toy and I could put it back together again. And I can give it back to him and the excitement that he gets when he gets his tractor back. Sorry, front loader because he's very specific on what kind of tractor it is. When he gets his front loader or his excavator back or just now he learned what a backhoe digger was. And so he, he gets that back and he's so excited. It's like it's brand new. And he, he runs and he starts playing with it again. Uh, his toy was, was broke, but, but it wasn't broken. This is what Paul is talking about here. In order for us, in order for Judah to receive the joy of having his toy fixed again, he's got to come to the father and say, it needs batteries. <laughs> and, and, and it's broken. And then I get the joy and pleasure of putting it back together again. And then I see his face when I go, here you go, pal. And then, he's, and then he goes off and plays. We come to the Father and we'll say, I, I need batteries. And he goes, you don't need batteries. You need a new heart. You need, you need my spirit. I can put you back together again. It takes us going to him and then he breathes the new life into us. He redeems us. He justifies us. He, he, there's atonement. There's covering for our sins. He gives us everything we need and then we boast in his grace, not what we've done because we realize how broken we are, and he puts us back together again. And so today I ask you, what are the places in your life where you feel the most brokenness? Maybe it's the places you've been avoiding. Maybe it's the places you don't want to talk about. Maybe you've given up, and you don't think you can ever be put back together again. Paul says this to us, yes, you can. You can be fixed. You can be restored 
you can find redemption, you can find freedom, and you can be declared right and set back and given your call. So what's the place where you find yourself broken? And are you willing to admit to Jesus, I'm broken, I need to be healed, will you heal me? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all the brokenness we see, we can come to you and say, Father, fix it. I'm broken. And you restore. You redeem. You place us back on the right path. And then you say, not guilty. Because on them I see Christ. And so today, Father, may you identify the places in our lives where we are sinking, where our feet are getting wet, and either we're ignoring it or we're embracing it. May your spirit show us that this is not a way to live. This is not the way that you have for us so that we can be restored and brought back to the life that you have promised us. Create in us clean hearts. Renew your spirit within us. Restore the relationship between you and us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you keep your promises, that the righteousness of God, your righteousness, chases us down and says, I'm not going to leave you broken. I'm going to fix this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.